This is it. I'm through. I'm dead. I'm done. You gotta come up with something. They'll never let me fly again. They're gonna ground me forever. Ground you? You stole an airplane from the Air Force. You had a girl and an open bottle of champagne in the cockpit. I'm screwed. You're gonna be lucky if they let you walk again. So what are you gonna say? I don't know. Okay, look. Tell the Colonel this girl is, like, terrified of flying. She had a brother who was killed in a plane crash. He, he got shot down in Vietnam. So you took her up in your plane to get her over the fear. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I'll see right through it. You're right. You're screwed. Now you tell me that doesn't sound like Ferris Bueller got a job at the Air Force and is still doing the things that he was doing in high school. You tell me. You tell me. I think it's Ferris Bueller. episode of the cinema psych podcast the podcast where psychology meets film i am your host dr alex swan and in today's episode we are going to go a little bit back in time to a simpler time i suppose 1987 to jonathan kaplan's project x now if you're not familiar with this story that's okay I don't think it it made a lot of noise even. So it stars Matthew Broderick and his face is plastered all over the posters and, and, and these kinds of things. But it came out in 1987. And so that's only a year after Ferris Bueller. I'm sure he was riding that high. Uh, and And he kind of acts like a little bit of Ferris Bueller in the movie so it's almost like what did ferris bueller do after he graduated high school oh he hung out with some apes in the air force sounds good the movie also stars helen hunt as a graduate student at the university of wisconsin madison doing a primatology work and specifically uh ape language project uh, and really, there isn't very many characters beyond Willie, who plays Virgil, the uh, the chimp, uh, the main chimp in the story. William Sadler is, has a has a role of sort of the antagonist, um, but really the antagonist of this movie is the United States military slash the United States government. And uh, well, there it's kind of like two films rolled into one. There's a 15 minute like. Here's Virgil learning how to speak sign language. And then maybe a little bit more uh, along the lines of a, ooh, the military is bad kind of plot. The idea is they're using these chimps to um, learn how to do a flight simulator 
And then they expose the ones that are really good at the flight simulator to ionizing radiation inside of a chamber. And, um, well, you know, you can imagine that when you get exposed to a high high dose of ionizing radiation, you're probably going to die. And so this was like, hmm, what happens to humans if they were to get exposed by this? We need to make sure our pilots have enough time to drop payloads on the Soviet Union in case they, I don't know, bomb us or something. And then we bomb them and so many, so many ridiculous things that lead up to this. But in any case... Uh, Matthew Broderick's character, uh, we, uh, G- uh, Jimmy Garrett, there we go, I got it, um, sees that Virgil knows how to speak sign language, and so he's like, of course, there's got to be more to these apes, and the rest of the story follows. So, this story is kind of uh, kind of like an early exploration, or at least the zeitgeist of the time, uh, or the I should say the zeitgeist in that uh, the animal rights movement is um, in full swing here in the the mid to late 80s. So we are experiencing a narrative exploring both sides of this debate within this film. And I've got a really good guest to help us explore this film. So without further ado, as I always say, let's jump right into it. My guest host today is Dr. Karen Brackey. She's a professor of psychology and the co-director of the Teaching Resource and Research Center at Spelman College in Atlanta. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. I'm so happy to be here. It's a great honor to be on this podcast. (laughs) I appreciate that, and I'm very happy to have you on. Before we Before we start discussing the film that you brought to the show today, um, and we definitely have a lot to say about this one, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts of film in general and um, about and and if you could a little bit about using them in uh, psychology courses. Yeah, so. you know, I love film as as a storytelling tool. You know, I have some interest in in storytelling as pedagogy, and you know, films can be a fantastic way to do that. Um, effective way of telling stories. They're in the culture, and there's a lot of potential for teaching there, um, especially in psychology. With we're talking about the human experience, right? And those are yeah. the stories we we love. Um, and having said that, in my teaching, just given the classes I teach, mm-hmm. um, I've pretty much stuck with documentaries. Um, I teach a lot of child development kinds of courses okay. and and other thing um, uh, courses where there's a lot of really good documentaries. So they're mm-hmm. just not fictional stories, but they still provide that story arc a lot of times. Um, yeah, that can be valuable and can illustrate some of what we're talking about much better than, um, you know, just talking about it or, or even doing sometimes classroom activities, you know, seeing that story that's powerful, that can be really effective. Yeah. I think some of my favorite documentaries, um, just in general, not, not just in psychology have a really good story arc to them. And, and I know that, um, uh, Morgan Spurlock is, is a uh, controversial figure in, in documentary filmmaking and he's got some interesting ideas, but I find that his documentaries are, uh, enrapturing because of the story that he puts behind them. So yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Now, not to put you on the spot, but 
what uh, documentaries, uh, what are some of the uh, often used documentaries that you use? So uh, let's see. What I show in developmental psychology um, quite a bit, it has some problems with it, but it's still to me a very powerful one, is The Lost Children of Rockdale County. Um, and it talks about a syphilis outbreak in the 1990s, so it's older, uh, in a, actually a suburb of Atlanta. Oh, wow. And the syphilis outbreak started with 12 and 13 year old girls. And it turned out there was this network of 200 teenagers involved. And it starts out as a story about syphilis, but it ends up being really kind of a critique of parenting and communities just leaving the children, the teenagers to themselves and wow. fending for themselves. There's no oversight. There's no community sense of community um, in terms of, you know, these are suburbs that grew up very quickly uh, and parents are all off working, trying to financially improve their lives. and there's a lot, it gets into teen identity, teen risk behavior. Um, there's uh, some commentary on race that my students <laughs> pick up on right away. Mm -hmm. um, and justice that, you know, are, are difficult to watch. Um, another one is um, the medicated child. Okay, talking yeah. Talking about I've, I've, prescription I've medicines with kids. There's mm -hmm. another one. Oh, shoot. What is it? Um, talking about mental health in the prison system. Um, and I can't remember the name of it right now. Oh, that that um, one sounds interesting, too. But it's talking about how prisons are now the the um, primary largest mental health facilities in the country. I did and what hear that. happens in the prison and then when people get out of the prison. Right. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot because, um, you know, we have these massive populations of prisoners throughout the country and then you know when they get when they get released they still have stuff to deal with and we talked about this on a uh, previous episode a few episodes ago with uh shawshank redemption and one of the mm -hmm. characters who could have used um some mental health care uh, mm -hmm. after he had gotten out and he eventually um eventually takes his own life so yeah that's a lot and i uh, thank you for sharing those documentaries but of course for this program, we're going to shift to fiction films, <laughs> and I will be honest, um, <laughs> the I think this is actually kind of funny. Um, here, I'm going to be uh, uh, self-deprecating. So at the beginning of Project X, there is a little title card that has uh, just a few words on it saying what the air force was doing with chimps uh in the 1980s which is the, when the film was released and when the film was set and i took that as fact um and i went to look it up afterward i'm like oh what about project x was actually real nothing about the movie uh has any basis in uh what the U.S. military was doing in the 1980s with chimps. Now, there may be things that were sort of kind of like what was happening in the movie, but the movie itself is not based on real events. And um, yeah, I felt kind of, kind of dumb. Uh, no, you should not, because I did present it that way, right? And, and there were things going on in the military, maybe not in the 80s. Um, and there was research, you know, that that did use primate, non-human primates. Yeah. Um, to train for um, or substitute for human <laughs> um, 
pilots. I mean, think about Ham, um, the chimpanzee who was sent up into space. Right. Know, yeah. I knew about know. the and space. And there's other stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. There's other stuff going on in research labs. And so this had a military setting, I think, um, just to give it that extra you know, creepy government kind of thing. Going yeah, on. exactly. Yeah, because uh, the government is the bad guy in this movie, right? But there was, yeah, there. This was an age where um, there was a new like animal rights movement, right? Before this, it was animals are um, for many years, right? Behaviorism: animals don't have a soul. Animals can't feel pain. They're you know, yeah, classical and operant conditioning only. And so this is the age in the 80s where people, you started having a cognitive revolution for animals, started, um, um, you know, recognizing some of the things animals can do, um, started being concerned. PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, arose during this era. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is the cultural setting that this movie was responding to rather than the specifics yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i took that title card as like as truth oh boy <laughs> so before we get get more into the meat of that because i want to do i, I do want to explore uh what you just said a little bit more but so you chose project x so what what made you choose that karen so Really, because I, I was trying to think of movies. I haven't seen, I, I haven't gone to the theater in quite a while. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm pretty much a, a Netflix girl. And um, <laughs> and I'm also, given my specialty, I, I'm not a personality or social psychologist, which a lot of films, there's, it seems easier to find, I don't know, it might be my, just my bias or something. It seems like it'd be easier to find films to talk about with that. As as someone who focuses in research on like one to three year olds, mm-hmm. there aren't that many movies to to uh, really pick apart that I know. Look of. who's Maybe talking. They're out there, but yeah. <laughs> so look who's talking so and look who's talking too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, I guess we could, and maybe I'll go back and watch those, and we can go on next year about those. But, um, so I, I went back a little further into my past um, when my graduate work actually was working on one of these ape language projects. And, That's really cool, by the way. And it was, yeah, it was a cool time. Um, I was on the Rumbaugh's project with Kanzi, the bonobo, and worked with him and his, his the the other bonobos and chimpanzees there. Um, for about 11 years. Wow. Um, and so, you know, and that was when I was there when this movie came out. And we watched movies at the lab <laughs> with the chimps or with the apes, with the bonobos and the chimps. Um, and this was one of the movies that we had in our library. So I remembered it and it came to mind when I thought back then. And the other movies I remember are Quest for Fire and Harry and the Hendersons. And quite <laughs> frankly, I didn't really see talking about them for an hour. So, you know, this one I think is interesting in, at a couple of different levels. Um, and in terms of the issues that it brings up, um, it's old, it's hard to find. It's kind of a, a sleeper movie in some ways. Oh yeah. Um, but I think there are, there are things to, to talk about and unpack um, for it that are relative to the work we do. Yeah. I think uh, when you said that you were, um, doing ape language projects uh, at the time, I was like, oh, okay. So maybe this will be like a, the Planet of the Apes, the reboot 
uh, version mm-hmm. where they spend a little bit more time with um, Caesar, I think is the name of the mm-hmm. the chimp that eventually develops language for those films, which is supposed to be like the prequel to the even Charlton Heston ones where mm-hmm. he goes through time when he's traveling um, faster than the speed of light. Which which that was the very first movie I ever saw. First really? Yeah, that's wow. how old I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, Caesar is Roddy McDowell. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so I thought that's where you were going. And then you mentioned Project X. And I was like, huh, what? Um, and, and of course, uh, a name like Project X doesn't really give you much of anything. And so when I looked it up, you were like, not the 2012 film. I, I, I of course, that's going to be the one that comes up in searches mm-hmm. first. So everyone who is who is listening to this and, and, and does want to uh, partake in uh, this discussion and find out, you know, all the things that we're talking about, do not the, the 2012 version has nothing to do with apes. So don't watch that one. So I was excited when I started watching this because you didn't really give me a ton to go on, which was fine. Um, you know, go in there with a, a some some blind eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, with the but being fresh, right? I didn't yeah. want to influence you one way or the other. Exactly. I wanted to hear your honest reactions about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and I definitely appreciate that because that's how I like to go into films, um, even ones that I think about constantly like Marvel films and getting all of the goodies on those. Like I watch a ton of YouTube videos in anticipation of those movies, but for everything else, I tend to want to come in. Yeah. Um, with as little as, uh, with as little expectation as possible. And, uh, I do think it, I'll I'll just give some broad thoughts on it first, and then you can give your broad thoughts and then we can jump into the psych. Uh, so broad thoughts, uh, I thought the film was okay. Um, I didn't necessarily like the pacing and or overall plot. I do like the psych stuff in it. I think that that should go without saying. But um, overall, I really thought it was um, a, a almost an interesting sequel to Ferris Bueller's Day Off because <laughs> Matthew Broderick comes into this film right after the success of Ferris Bueller. And and that film did have uh, real-time success. It's gotten a, quite a bit... It's I, I would say over the last three decades, continued success. Mm-hmm. It's one of those films that sort of doesn't die. Um, but he came into it a year later, and he almost looks exactly the same. His characterization, uh, Jimmy is his name. And so, yeah, it's not Ferris, but it's Jimmy as he doesn't go by James. So I thought that I was like, oh, so I I suppose I'm watching another version of Ferris Bueller. Maybe he's a little bit more grown up um, because he's in the Air Force now. But not really, because it starts off with him being a uh, a, rebel, ne'er do well, mess up. And he has to get assigned to this the secret project um, where Apes are being used uh, to uh, chimps specifically are being used to uh, act as human pilot analogs and um, then get exposed to radiation. Sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, which I think is everyone. Uh, Whether or not you'll go and watch it (laughs) is up to you. It was on HBO in October 20. 
21. So, you know, you might be able to find it. But they get exposed to radiation to see how long they would live uh, for pilots getting into the situation if a nuclear war. I wanted to tell you, man. Then why didn't you? You didn't have clearance. Hey, that's bullshit, man. You were supposed to be my friend. Hey, what do you think is going on here? You see them take JT out. He doesn't come back. What do you think is going on down that tunnel? I didn't know. So what is it? What is it? Are they, are they all? Yes, all. Look, they radiate the chimps to see how long they can fly before they die. They're supposed to tell us if our guys can survive long enough to get to Russia in case World War III happens. There's nothing you can do about it, man. It's the Air Force. Jimmy, you do your job, or you're gonna wind up like Watts. What happened to Watts, anyway? Couldn't handle it. Got too attached. He was crazy. No. He would AWOL. He couldn't handle it. Me, Jimmy, I treat these animals well, but I don't get too attached to them. That's what you got to do. So I'm the new Lord of the Apes. Look, Jimmy, you had to take that promotion. You don't want to stay around here, man. You do your job. Don't get involved. You'll be out of here before you know it. You forget all about this place, man. Interesting for where the Cold War was in the late 80s. And like I said a few minutes ago, the U.S. government slash the U.S. military is really the villain in this film. Uh, it's more of a villain of of uh, convenience than anything else. And then I think a, a, a really oddly characterized doctor is sort of part of the villainy as well, which I thought was weird. But I, I think they put him in there as a foil for the um, you know, he was making the arguments that were the establishment arguments at the time. Yeah. And so I think hearing what you have to say about that might might help me with this one with that part specifically. But overall, I thought the acting was OK. Uh, I thought the acting was OK. Uh, Matthew Broderick was being Matthew Broderick. Um, Helen Hunt, though, I loved her character because she seemed really invested as a graduate student um, trying to, you know, teach Virgil, our main character chimp, to communicate. And of course, he could within the context of the film. Uh, I don't and know how I don't know. You can probably go into this more, Karen, but I don't know how much of that was just um, uh, the chimp. Willie, I think, was the chip's chimp's real name was just hitting marks or um, was actually communicating. Uh, so I'd love to, to I'd love to hear more about that from you. So overall, it was a it was an OK film. I won't give it a, a big thumbs down, but I will give it a big side uh, thumb sideways. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I understand that. And, and you know, it, 
it, it's not on my you know top five list or anything right. like that. You know, um, it was a great movie in the day for the Sunday afternoon watching TV. It was on a lot back in the day. Wow. <laughs> you okay. know, um, those Sunday, you know, where you're just flipping channels and something's coming on. That's that's sort of the the, the role that it had at the, at a few years after it mm-hmm. um, um, was released. Um, just a couple of things, you know, again. Um, you know, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. I mean, that was his, he was always had that character, like Bloxy Blues, I think was a similar, right? Yes. If he had played something really different, people may not have accepted it as, you know, as his type or whatever. Right. He was in the middle. That's what he played off of. And that's what he had. I did see, you know, and I think they were trying to show some growth in him and some development in him, you know, whether that worked or not, you know, but there were definitely Ferris Bueller moments in there Mm -hmm. for sure. Right at the beginning. And then when he was in the bar playing poker with the other guys, Mm -hmm. you know, that was straight out of that same character. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and Helen Hunt, you know, Hey, we have a grad psychology grad student in a movie (laughs) as a main character. And it's, she's not, you know, clinically analyzing anyone. (laughs) Exactly. Stereotyped in that way. So that was good. (laughs) Um, But yeah, in terms of the apes, um, I, I don't think they were actually communicating. They were clearly intelligent, you know, yeah. and intentional. And there was that eye contact there. They had human relationships. I suspect they were trained for the movie to do these particular actions. I know there, I was, I was actually looking up like you, I was kind of looking on the web to see more about the making of the movie. Um, it was actually controversial because there's some, you know, allegations out there that ironically in making this movie about, supporting animal rights they actually didn't always treat the animals real well um i was afraid of that you know so uh yeah that that's a little disappointing um because these are you know apes that are way stronger than we are um they seem to be fairly tightly controlled um they did a lot of cool things they were very good in their roles right yeah really things that they did that that were you know, showed their intelligence. Um, but I imagine they were trained for a lot of those. You could tell, you know, when they sat down, they were being told to sit down. They were looking over at their their person to to get those cues. Yeah, um, I felt like there it was a it was a lot of of Mark hitting. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but even still, the early scenes where we learn about Virgil um, and his ability to be uh, communicative with sign language with Helen Hunt in her um, language lab. I did. There were some scenes of them at in the same space. So. I did find that rather interesting because. Uh, Willie, who played Virgil, would play off of what Helen Hunt was doing, which is pretty complex. So they're looking over at their handlers a lot when it's just them on the screen. They're not looking at anybody else. It's just their handlers and their their trainers. Um, but when it was just the two, when it was the two of them, I was like, well, they had to teach Helen Hunt uh, what to do and then teach uh, Willie to play off of what Helen Hunt was doing, which, you know, that takes a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. And and I think I'd be interested to hear the the actors, the human actors now, you know, to hear what they did and how much time they spent um, with Willie and the, you know, maybe a couple of the other chimps. I think there were like five altogether. Yeah. Um, but to develop a relationship and, you know, how much time they spent interacting and with, you know, and then with cameras rolling, you know, how much time it took to get... <laughs> those couple 10 second scenes where they're interacting with each other and helping each other out and, and doing things together. Yeah. Um, So yeah, there's a a lot of, um, I thought they edited it fairly well. Um, Yeah. Clearly, you know, clearly it takes a lot to get the apes actually communicating with sign and, and being referential like that, but they, you know, for a movie, they they did what they could. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it, not it's it, not it, entirely accurate, of course. But <laughs> right, it comes across to me as um, seamless enough that if you weren't a psychologist, and I think that's the point here, that if you're mm-hmm. not a psychologist and you're not steeped within animal cognition or even sign language or anything like that, maybe you don't even know who Coco the gorilla is or was. Um, that it should look like Virgil, the character, is communicating via sign language. Right. right. Rudimentarily, but, you know. Right. Communicating that way. So what I want to do first is talk about, like, the first part of the movie, because it seemingly plays a little bit like two different films, um, in the beginning of the movie and the sort we'll call that the first like 10 first 15 minutes or so. And then the rest of the movie is mm-hmm. Helen Hunt as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, Madison uh, doing uh, these ape language. And so as somebody with experience in this um, animal cognition situation, if you want to give us a little bit of background on how that kind of process works, what are the things that go into it? What are the ideas surrounding specifically like ape cognition, so on and so forth? Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot going on at that time. There were, you know, a number of these animal language projects, mostly with chimpanzees. Also, you, as you mentioned, Coco the gorilla, mm-hmm. um, Alex the parrot. Um and and they were took different approaches at the time because everybody was trying to figure out what's the best way to communicate um, with apes. I'll focus on the ape work and, and the chimpanzee work in particular. So sign language, of course, um, was a prominent um, type of communication because American Sign Language already existed. It was a language system that could be used and adapted. Um, vocal, there were some early vocal attempts, but um, chimps don't have the same vocal apparatus that we do, and they don't have right. the same air control. So that kind of got ruled out pretty quickly. Um, so there were several sign language um, projects, um, and those met with mixed success. Okay. Um, and I won't go into all the critiques right now. Um, but some of the critiques were that, you know, apes were just being repetitive, that, um, it's hard to know, you know, with ape hands, if they put their hand up to towards their mouth, that can be a number of different signs. Sure. Right. Um, 
there's not often not a lot of precision there that maybe we have a little more dexterity and to distinguish between the sign for food and the sign for flower, for example. It, right. Um, and so it leaves a lot open to interpretation of what's being signed and what's not. And some of those projects, too, were critiqued because they didn't have a stable base of caregivers. They would have people just, you know, a number of different graduate students sort of playing that Helen Hunt role mm -hmm. where they'd come in for a couple hours, you know, try to operantly condition the, the chimp to sign and mm -hmm. then leave. And that didn't seem to work much at all. <laughs> right. And opened itself to a lot of critique of the critiques I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I'm a little biased because our project used a different approach. We had a stable group of caregivers. We were with them when they were little 24-7 um, to develop those relationships. We used the touch symbols. So this was the Kanzi project that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. We used touch symbols um, so that it was clear what they were touching because um, often... This was the early days where you could have electronic keyboards that gave you audio feedback okay. with the word. Yeah. Um, so you could tell what it was and it would register on the computer, for example. Um, and we also raised the bonobos and chimps from early age um, rather than starting when they were four or five years old. And that made a difference, too, because, you know, their plasticity when they're very young. Right. Yeah. So. um so I think our project moved, the Rumbaugh's project, kind of moved the needle a little further along than any of the other projects. I'm biased. But <laughs> the apes that we raised understood clearly had understood the English vocabulary, receptive words, demonstrated that under test, uh, test conditions. Mm -hmm. um, they, um, you know, used about... Uh, Anywhere from a hundred to a couple hundred symbols. The bonobos okay. did better than the chimpanzee. Okay. Um, I've heard that. I've heard yeah, that. Yeah. They, they, they have a little more flexibility and just, just it was a little bit easier. It's like they were A students and the chimpanzee was, were C students in some ways. Um, but anyway, um, but you know, a lot of people are, are a little bit threatened, you know, that, apes can do stuff like that and and that's kind of one of the things with the cognitive revolution of ape cognition you know it, it threatens our feeling of being special as humans what is it that makes us human that's special and, and different from other other related species which and is so a which pushback is, which <laughs> has always been a fascinating question for me because i don't know I mean, other than, I want to say other than language, I don't know what, and honestly, it's a biased lens mm -hmm. from which we look um, mm -hmm. at language here because other animals have an amazing set of language and communication skills. Like I'll, I'll just, marine mammals, for example, whales and, and dolphins. So it's always been an interesting uh, uh, philosophical question for me. It's like, why do we need to find the special right just the, the special piece the special sauce of of humanity i mean yeah we've created uh technology i i i <laughs> i was thinking about this uh this is one of my shower thoughts um i think it was yesterday or the day before um i thought to myself man 
if we're trying to find out what makes humans so special, it's probably because we make our own problems and then we refuse to solve them. <laughs> and, could be it. <laughs> I mean, it's got it's probably one of them because I, I imagine some animals make their own problem could make their own problems. Maybe dogs or cats make their own problems, but at least they attempt to solve them. Right. Right. Yeah. It's our our belief in conspiracies and the, <laughs> the things that that we do. Yeah. That that that's probably um, as good an answer as any. But I think, you know, getting back to the language and the specialness of language, I think that that ties in with the music, right? Because mm-hmm. as soon as Matthew Broderick saw that that um, Virgil, who is Willie's character, mm-hmm. was communicating via sign. And I'm not going to get into whether that's true language or not. Right. right. There's language and communication. And, you know, we could go on for I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> but as soon as he sees that kind of symbolic communication that they're mm-hmm. trying to portray there his view changes right and oh yeah suddenly and, and that you know to him that makes the animals that much closer to humanity and a commercial came on and it was for a charity see so the woman in it was using sign language and she's saying help Gary, you know, Gary, help is there a point to this story well yeah see that's when i realized that virgil here is using sign language to communicate with me There, see that? He just made the sign for Apple. No, Virgil, you can't have the Apple because you gave it to your girlfriend last night, you remember? (laughs) Sir, I think that this could be of great benefit to the program. Here, watch. This is the sign for food. See? Okay. Food. Come on, food. There, see? Yeah, well, somebody obviously conditioned him to do that. I mean, it's like Pavlov's dog. The bell rings and he salivates. You must have learned about that in high school. No, no, no. He makes signs all the time and nobody is ringing any bells. When a dog is happy, he wags his tail. When he has to urinate, he scratches on the door. Now, you wouldn't call that sign language, would you? But this is different. He's using words. Garrett, what you're talking about has no conceivable relationship to the task we're trying to accomplish here. Now, I appreciate enthusiasm, but I suggest you unclutter your mind and put your energy to the work at hand. Uh, sir, maybe if we looked in the files, we might be able to find we out. We don't some need more to look in them. the files. No, we don't. That's absolutely right. And that's where the tension comes in: is okay now. If there's not that much difference between animals and humans, why are we willing to sacrifice animals for human good? And that was the the bigger argument at the time, you know, because animal research has benefited humans. Um, over the years, biomedical research and so forth. Yeah, let's look at but that a little bit cost. more closely. Yeah. So you said at this time. Um, and that's the second part of the movie, I guess. Is right, exactly. Into, right? Um, we, we move on from we move on from the graduate school setting and we move into a very uh, sterile military setting where instead of getting to hang out in a room full of toys and things like that, it's now very sterile cages that have big old bars and the vivarium just looks like a jail cell. So, Karen... You said at this time is when the animal rights movement, uh, especially in research, kicked into high gear um, a few minutes ago. Please, for for the for the listeners, go into a little bit more detail. I can't speak 
to any of this, but I am interested in hearing about it from somebody who's sort of lived through um, this firsthand. Yeah, so, you know, throughout much of, I'll say that just the 20th century, there was this sort of Cartesian view, you know, based on Descartes, of, and I was reading up on this a little bit, so, um, of animals, you know, if they don't have souls, they don't feel pain. Right. right. I think therefore I am. Right. So you have to have, you know, this sort of reflective cognition in order to have identity and a soul. And that's, you know, how all this human experience, uh, you know, reflecting on pain and that, you know, if animals don't have that and animals um, just respond to Skinnerian kinds of techniques, then, you know, you can pretty much do what you want with them because yeah. um, they're not feeling pain. <laughs> right. And and we don't want to, you know, we we don't want to subject humans to this, but animals can tolerate it better and they don't have as much value, for, for example. Um, and so a lot of stuff was going on with animals. People were pretty much doing whatever. Um, Yikes. And yeah, there were and there were um, there were always groups that kind of tried to, you know, anti-vivisectionists to complain about it, but they never got much traction until the 1980s. Okay. Um, 1970s, 1980s. That is when that with along with the human cognitive revolution, you know, the animal cognitive revolution was coming along. There are some labs that were exposed in terms of the research that they were doing just seemed really atrocious. Um, wow. The way that they were um treating animals um and particularly non-human primates wow uh, just you know they were doing nerve you know nerve research and yeah. brain injury research and it's hard to talk about and hard to you yeah. know, hear about is particularly if you're thinking about you know apes you know think about jane you know at the same time jane goodall and all the <laughs> all that's going on right? right so apes are becoming much more relatable to us and other non-human primates were starting to, you know, see more commonalities. So people started thinking about this and exposing labs. They, uh, a couple of people would infiltrate labs and release videos of this, you know, of these animals suffering. And this became a, a, a big debate within the research community mm -hmm. to what extent are researchers um, justified in creating animal suffering in, in order to support human good. Mm -hmm. And some of the animal rights people were breaking into labs and stealing research animals, mm -hmm. um, threatening researchers. Some researchers were just coming across as very insensitive and, you know, we don't care. We we're trying to benefit humans mm -hmm. and, you know, very old school views. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, so in the eighties or when the first animal care and use committees came about, um on the heels of irbs and human right. ethics yeah there was also that going on so just a lot of things going on that was a very long answer <laughs> to what your question was but a lot of things were going on in society looking at sort of this um recognition of of primates and our place among the the animal world and questioning the distance between humans and others animals, just like you were mentioning before, why do we need this? But apparently a lot of people do want to feel special and do want to feel that we're not just animals yeah. rather than part of the natural world. Cause then you have to start 
addressing all of these tough questions. Yeah. Um, so this film, I think, was one of the films that kind of came out of that to bring some of these issues to the public. And that the chief doctor or whoever, the William Sadler character, right. he was the one kind of presenting these these arguments for this is what you know, we have to why we have to have this research. And of course, it's going to make us feel uncomfortable, but the greater good and animals don't feel pain. He was the one, the character that was put in that position to, and it didn't always work. It was kind of a weird character, as you say. Yeah. Um, he was the bad guy, though, but they portrayed it as the bad guy. Right, exactly. Um, he is the he is the mouthpiece for uh the u.s government and and of mm -hmm. course we can definitely make a distinction between university whether they're state or private universities doing these kinds of of studies versus the u.s military which is going to do things in a far more quick and dirty way um even outside of because they can always put a you know, uh, this is classified and mm -hmm. essentially that's what they do in the film is only a select number of people get to know what this project actually is, even though there are murmurs amongst the uh, other crew that work there. But the government can put a lid on things that other other organizations like universities and private research labs can't really do. And uh, when you bring when, when you bring that up, it's kind of interesting when I teach sensation and perception. I discuss a lot of animal studies um, because a lot of animal work was done on chimps and cats, for example, mm -hmm. in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s. And a lot mm -hmm. of what we know about our visual system, for example, um, comes from uh, putting you know, cutting open, vivisecting uh, brains and putting sensors or electrodes inside these brains to find out what happens when they a light goes on versus when a light goes off. You know, mm -hmm. that's obviously an oversimplification, but honestly, that's what they were doing. And in this movie, they're subjecting the chimps to high dose ionizing radiation which would be felt by anyone in a radiation cloud after a big nuclear weapon would be detonated. And so there, I, I honestly, after the first chimp, I don't know why they need anyone else. Yeah, well, it's for the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's I, for the story because we have to get to the even, story. But even in real life, they, <laughs> they yeah. do... Um, you know, uh, uh, an end greater than one there. But I think even in the 1980s, uh, <laughs> even in the 1980s, we knew what what was going to happen when you got exposed to radiation and how yeah. long it might take you based on the dosage of radiation that you yeah. get. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. But I, I yes, in service of the story, they needed they needed Virgil to be the lynch endangered. Yeah, yeah. So from a from a research point of view, how well does each pocket do in your book? 
the Helen Hunt pocket at the beginning of the film where, you know, she's teaching Virgil sign language and then the research at the Air Force Base. How how well do they do they work in your mind? Uh, there's pieces of truth in there. Okay. I think there's pieces. Um, um, so for the Helen Hunt part, when she stopped, you know, trying to just get him to say Apple when she already knew the answer and made it so that it was functional that he, you know, she stopped and she gave up and said, okay, I'm just going to eat the apple. And that's when he wanted it. Right. Because that's when he had to actually use the sign to communicate what he wanted. Yeah. Right. That piece has, is, you know, has a little validity to it and that why should they, you know, make the signs if you already know the answer, <laughs> it's not communicating <laughs> right. anything and not functional. Um, so, um, and I, I was amused by by the you know Virgil just running back and forth and ignoring her. <laughs> um, there are, are are moments like that as well, um, but of course a lot of the stuff um, um, didn't ring quite true. Um, and then um, yeah, with them you know having these uh, chimps calmly go to the and sit in the flight simulators you know and just sit there for a long time and try to work the flight simulators and actually fly <laughs> I thought that was um, so for a raisin here and there you know and nobody got bitten <laughs> nobody i mean not that i i, I should say not that the apes will not that they're going to bite everybody all every day but you know you got them in cages you got people who don't know them you got people reaching out for them uh, you know, there's going to be a bite happening somewhere there. <laughs> um, or even just with, with people who don't know what they're doing, which clearly these people working with these chimps did not know. What yeah, they were doing. exactly. <laughs> just get some grunts here to come in, like move might just them be a, from place to place. Right. And it might just be a little warning bite, but, you know, that kind of thing. And I, and I, I don't want to give the, the chimps a bad name. Um, but, you know, just little things like that, that people were doing really stupid things mm -hmm. and getting away with it. Um, you know, in some respects, the most authentic scenes were the ones where the, the chimps rebelled at the end. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and we're just going through the lab and doing what they wanted. to do. <laughs> <laughs> I did thought I, yes, I thought that that was great. And it you know, it's, uh, I think in a way they were showing what they thought of the lab. Yeah. Yeah. And and I you know, that actually is an exaggeration, too, because, again, you know, I, I. In my experience, if you have a good relationship with them, things are pretty calm, you can get them to do things. We did sit for a long time and and, you know, do different tasks and different activities. Um, but you had to stay, you know, it had to be someone who had a good relationship with them, who they saw as someone being in control. And um, you had to kind of be reading them at their level every every moment. Um, so I don't want to portray sort of the sort of work I did as just being chaos. Yeah. But um, you had to really work hard on reading them and knowing, anticipating what might happen and knowing them as individuals in order to keep, you know, keep it moving forward and to keep things where you could focus on their learning. <laughs> well, I want to pick back up with that point, uh, but I do. Let's take a quick break 
and we'll come back and I do have a, a quick question for you to, to round out that discussion. We'll be right back with Dr. Karen Brackey. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown, and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. Thanks. And now back to the show. All of us here recognize how remarkable the work you've done is. And you know you have a good shot at a position on this faculty. They're not taking Virgil away. Terry, don't throw all that away because of an attachment to this animal. Uh, Bring them here. Let them see how much he's learned. When they see how much he's learned... They don't care. I've been on the phone with them all morning. It's like talking to a brick wall. Well, I don't care. I'm keeping him. The National Health Foundation owns him. I'll buy him. And where are you going to find the $15,000? I'll raise it. Not to mention the $10,000 a year for food and a veterinarian. Come on. I'll get it. We all knew this was a temporary arrangement when he got here. I raised him... He, he doesn't know anybody but me. He's not going to understand what's happening. There's a new children's zoo in Houston. I think he's going to be sent there. He'll be well cared for and well loved. So we are back with Dr. Karen Brackey. We are talking about Project X, a film that came out in 1987 starring Matthew Broderick. He's got his face plastered on the poster you wouldn't know there were chimps involved unless you looked very closely before the break karen we were uh talking about the we'll call it truth of the research situations um and you brought up an interesting point that i wanted to to go a little bit further with so you had mentioned that the air force research scenes are a little hokey um and cut a lot of research corners um you had mentioned when you uh in the last segment when we first started talking about your experience with these um ape language projects that you tended to get them rather young months old uh whereas the movie doesn't really show that these chimps go to this Air Force base at whatever age. So what would be the difference then in relationships starting at young in your experience versus what would happen in a research setting like the Air Force base with older chimps? Yeah, so again, I can only speak to my setting. Um, 
and the way we did things. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, it might be different other places. And but for us and the environment that we were trying to encourage, we were trying to give the, the apes a lot of freedom, a lot of context to learn. Right. Um, and um, a ri- very rich environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And they were being asked to learn pretty complex things, right? Referential communication <laughs> using symbols. Yeah. Um, and so we had, you know, daily routines that we would go for and we were in, in with them and, and um, um, you know, we had different rooms in different areas and different places we would go. You know, our, our project is documented elsewhere. Um, <laughs> and so. Um, for us in it was really important it was the people who started working with them when they were you know basically very young um uh who were able to sort of take that um surrogate parent role that were able to maintain kind of parent-ish relationship i'll say mm-hmm. um a la harry harlow's uh, well a little more complex than that yeah <laughs> but you know when they're when they're little you know the 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 people who yeah who provide care who who they they listen to who who um um you know they they want to get along with who know how to anticipate their needs and their you know what's going on and, and are sensitive to their um what they're thinking or what their emotions are at the time you can tell when they're getting tense for example um you know, it's just like, um, you know, a, 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 a grown man still listening to his mother. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and so if you don't establish them there, they're, they're real young and you try to come in when they're older and they have more autonomy and they're already stronger than you. Um, the tools you have at your disposal are more limited. And so it's harder to develop that relationship at the level that we were doing it. You can still, you know, work with them and have good relationships. But for what, you know, we were trying to do with the symbol learning and so forth, it was really dependent on on starting when they're young, when they're yeah. plastic, uh, their brains are, have had more plasticity, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the relationship and starting with the project and the, the symbols learning and introducing language at a very young age, just like with human babies, right? Once they reach a certain age, it's harder for them to learn a particular language. Right, sure. Their brains get are wired um, differently. So if you wait too long in terms of understanding English, for example, sure. um, they're not going to understand it in the same way as, as maybe if you really work on it when they're babies. So um, this is my big question for you then, Karen, as far as learning things goes. Do you think a chimp who is older can learn how to fly a flight simulator? <laughs> I would be um they can learn joysticks, right? Sure. They can they can learn to do things. Um, you know, there's there's a whole literature on computer interactions um to test ape cognition. Really? I uh, that was a more of a glib question, but okay. Yeah, there there's joysticks and touch screens and um computer mediated tasks okay. are one of the main ways that we found out a lot about ape capabilities and and monkey capabilities. Okay. Um in terms of counting or you know numerosity mm-hmm. and 
other cognitive processes, understanding of same and different and kind of things. Um, so they can use computers, um, but some tasks are more difficult than others. And with the flight simulator, I, I think if they had particular things that they were had to do, like to um, find a certain image and then get reinforced for that, you mm -hmm. know, or some there was some outcome for it, um, they might be able to learn that. But the way they were teaching them, um, I think it would be, you know, I, I didn't see how they were putting that all together. Um, you'd have to, you, I think you could train it somehow, but not the way they did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause, um, for, for anyone who is not, um, familiar with, with flying a plane, it requires all of your limbs. Well, maybe only one of your hands, but depending on what one hand is doing, the other hand is probably doing something else, but it also requires you to work um, feet, which um, make you go left or right on mm -hmm. the ground and in the air. Um, it, it the, the feet move the rudder, um, which is a similar, a similar thing to what is on a boat. But here is you, you know, you've, you're moving in 360 degrees where on a boat you are on a surface, right? You're not going down or mm -hmm. up. You're just going left or right. But in the air, you got to go left, right, up, down and side to side. So it didn't look to me as though. And of course, this is probably the we don't we just want to serve the story versus yeah. showing you actual training of these chimps in these flight simulators. We also don't get we also don't get a sense of time that right. um, uh, Matthew Broderick's character Jimmy is there at this base. Um, it doesn't they don't really show us. It could be weeks. It could be months. It's kind of difficult to tell. Uh, I don't know, Karen, do, do you have a sense of how much time elapses for it's, specifically for Virgil? Because we see him do the flight simulator for the first time and then at the end of the film, see him actually lift a plane off the ground, a real plane off the ground. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, time was hard. Um I get the sense that it was like a series of months. Months, okay. Just because you know he called Helen Hunt, and it it didn't seem like it was that far in the far back, and 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 mostly, and also you know the what I was noticing was that they were mostly young chimps, and they stayed young chimps. Virgil did not age at all once he got to the um, the Air Force Base. Yeah, it's very. He, it was, he was I guess young. it would have been difficult to age them. Um, what there was one, one, there was one chimp who looked Bluebeard, I guess, looked a little bit older to well, me, they, but there was they, they painted on his okay, they gave him face. some gray. <laughs> Goliath was a little the, the Goliath, the, okay, circus one, he was a little older, okay. Um, but most of them stayed pretty young, so and I don't know if that was intentional or not, um, to as part of the story or if that's just the filming schedule that they had, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible for them to do a flight simulator, <laughs> um, but just the way they were having them do it and, uh, you know, for a raisin here and there, <laughs> I'm not sure that's for, the way yeah, I Yeah, I, I thought that was for a raisin. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I know I'm not a chimp, 
Um, but if you give me a raisin, I will not do what you want me to do because I will not eat the raisin. <laughs> That's definitely yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but you know, I, I, I will say just in terms of interacting with a computer, that's one of the things that that has been discovered is they've really discovered a lot more depth to what non-human primates can do right because of being able to use the computer it lets you ask questions in new ways and it's turned out to be really successful yeah i'd be i'd honestly be interested if they have the if if it has been determined i'll say um i don't want to say whether or not they have it because they might and we just don't know the multiple dexterity but then again now that i think about it you know it's like they have four hands anyways yeah so yeah yeah the foot the foot part I, i'm not that concerned about because their feet are have, have a lot of dexterity in their feet and they're also actually will use their feet instead of their hands for some things sometimes yeah yeah um what they have trouble with and what I got ended up getting interested in and went into work with the kids was their hand coordination and how they okay. use their two hands together that they actually have a little more trouble with um, sort of like operating a joystick with one hand and pushing a fire button with another hand. Mm -hmm. um, that was actually difficult for, for um, some of the ones we work with. Okay. Yeah. Cause when you're flying a plane, you have a lot of, of different movements that need to be coordinated mm -hmm in a specific amount of time. Otherwise you're just going to go and then blow up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is interesting because that was the thing that was really in the back of my mind. If as far as story goes, and maybe that's part of the reason why I wasn't a big fan of this is because I would like, I will, I am willing to suspend my disbelief um, for any fictional film if the internal logic of the film is consistent mm -hmm. and I don't feel like the flight simulator was internally consistent. I don't feel like the logic of it was internally consistent because of the complexity of flying a plane and the limited complexity from which they showed it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that didn't jive for me. I yeah. didn't. No, like I that. Yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah, I, I do think that for me was one of the weaker part of the film, too. So we have Virgil, who is a is an ape that um, knows how to communicate and he communicates with uh, Matthew Broderick's character and Matthew Broderick. Jimmy says, no, don't send him to the final simulation with the radiation because we can learn more from him. And uh, and as you say, Karen, he struggles with his personal ethics here. And I think this is a very good discussion to have because animal rights issues do feature quite prominently within psychology. I mean, we can talk about it broadly, but I think within psychology, especially when you get new students who don't know anything about um, the nuance of animal research within psychology, um, see that research is being done on, on non-human primates and rats and all sorts of other uh, animals. And they're like, well, that's, we can't, do that 
So I do want to jump into the an ethics argument, maybe for a little not an argument between the two of us, but the debate on the ethics of animal research. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, um, what is the ethical dilemma that Jimmy faces in this film? So I think is if because the ethical dilemma really starts hitting home when he starts thinking of Virgil as sentient, mm -hmm. right? Because of the communication. So to what extent is it appropriate and ethical to harm one sentient being um, to benefit of another, particularly when the benefit is not clear? Okay, I like that. Yeah, the benefit not clear. Right. Um, it's very questionable um, the way it's presented. His his argument, the way he presents the argument in the movie. Right. Um, and so I think he goes back and forth, right? He tries to kind of re, um, remove sort of that, that or ignore that sentence from Virgil in term you know when he gets the the new position and he he's warring with he's also warring with his ambition right his ambition versus and duty and wanting to get out back out there and be a pilot yeah with also doing the right things by the chimps right you know, exactly. trying to help the chips and make a better life for them um under the conditions that they're working on so when he at one point in the film when he says okay um, I, this is my job. I've got to do it. He tries to ignore Virgil, mm -hmm. um, and he gets upset with him. And that's when Virgil starts misbehaving all over again. Right. Cause he's disrupting their, their relationship. Um, and that kind of fails spectacularly and leads to a series of events. Um, you know, um, and then he finally comes down on the side of, of helping the chimps. And um, his future becomes ambiguous in, in the Air Force. But he finally decides that this is the right thing to do. But I, I really think it has to do with the sentence and the, the things that they do in the movie. There's a couple of moments where they have the chimps look right at the camera as if they're looking at uh, one of the characters, as if they're looking at Matthew Broderick mm -hmm. or at the the lab chief where they give them this very human look right this very accusing glare like you did this to me yes um one is in the radiation chamber and one is when the chimps are all out i don't know if you saw they had was it goofy or one of the little ones sitting up high looking just like a judge oh yes i do yes i do recall that yeah. and and they really lingered on that so I think they were really trying to push the, the that these are sentient beings um, and that you can't just treat them as if they're they're not. And that that adds a new moral imperative. I think that's what the movie was saying. I like that. And um, the the first chimp that Jimmy witnesses go through this whole thing does have that very 
long, mournful look at Jimmy. Like, what did I just witness? And they did this interesting trick of the camera where they make it go in slow motion. And the only thing that they do is these flash of lights, which have nothing to do with, you know, shooting radiation at somebody. But they did it, I think, to reflect the moment and have that that look linger. And Jimmy really, really feel that deeply, Um, whether it's scorn, disdain, uh, you know, massive amounts of sorrow, um, knowing. Um, you know, yeah. we 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 tend to give. We might be anthropomorphizing a little bit, but we tend to give animals the ability to sense things that we cannot. Right, so we say that dogs know when there's going to be something dangerous happening, so they act all anxious or um cats do weird things in corners and so they're trying to attack ghosts i don't know uh <laughs> um and so on and so forth and we give these we give these additional abilities to to animals and i think that's what the filmmakers are trying to do with these looks is give them additional emotions uh, yeah I, I and i i think they're really trying to give them yeah, in, in some respects, humanity or something. Yeah. Another moment is uh, that I felt thought was kind of interesting was at the end where um, Goliath, um, you know, the, the chimps are loose and they're destroying the radiation chamber and the whole everything's in danger of blowing up. Yeah. And he's locked in there um, and they, you know, saves the day, basically. Right. That, I think, was a message as from the you know the writers of the film too of this sentence right mm-hmm. or of this you know he basically sacrificed his himself to save the people who were harming him right so that's another kind of ethical thing of you know that they are cooperating in this study and doing the you know doing the things um that are leading to them being harmed. And that's what Virgil, when he Virgil discovered. Yeah. When he walked in and saw the red collar and the, the chimp on the table, um, that, you know, we are contributing to our own demise. And yet at the, you know, the other one, he, he saved everybody and everybody cheered from him, but sacrificed himself basically. Yeah. So that that I think was a real message too. Yeah, and these messages maybe a little cheesy, a little corny, but again, at the time, you know, this was the conversation and it wasn't a given. And I think that uh you know, they they yeah, they are cheesy and they are corny and they are maybe a little rushed, but I think that is the intent of the filmmakers, right? Is to make them as in your face as possible. Um, and I think we can figure who uh, I think we can figure that the director here, Jonathan Kaplan, um, is uh, was a proponent of dismantling the status quo in in animal research. This this was his this was his project to um, 
really put his mark on it. And that's that's what I see from this. And that's why I think some of the messages here are supposed to be in your face kind of. Um, and yeah, maybe they'll maybe they come out a little bit cheesy. It's rating is kind of in the middling. Uh, you know, people don't like it. People are like, oh, this is great. And so it kind of gets in that middle. I think maybe for some of those um, filmmaking choices. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think I want to end with a um, particular thing that I found interesting. And I want to get your thoughts on this, um, Karen, because you had you had put this in the notes as well. And it's something that I read uh, even before that. I was going to put it in in our shared notes, Doc, but I saw that you had put it in there. So one of the trivia bits for this film is that uh then you can look at this trivia if you want on IMDb for Project X. It's one of the foremost uh, bits of trivia, I guess, for this film. Is that um, the chimps and chimps in general, and I guess maybe other uh, non-human primates like orangutans and 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 gorillas, etc., um, don't vocalize emotions the same way that humans do. This was a filmmaking choice again. So the directors said, well, that's not going to play well on camera because we need these chimps to be anthropomorphized in a way that brings them humanity, as we've discussed. So they brought in vocalizers for these chimps. They brought in humans to vocalize what sounds these chimps are making. So all of the chimp sounds that you hear in the film are overdubbed from humans making those uh, those vocalizations. And I thought that was strange. I get why, but I thought it was very strange. Karen, what do you think about this? I did not like that at all. It just bothered me no end. (laughs) You know, the little (laughs) and then the the yeah, uh, a lot of the, the screams that they make. Why can't they use authentic sounds? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, we have uh, so many, um, you know, documentaries. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it really bothered me. Um, again, you know, you can suspend disbelief for some things. That was something that just rubbed me the wrong way. It was very annoying. Um, I guess they were trying to add to the drama and communication uh, of of the animals. I think they were also playing off of sort of the stereotype vocalizations that prior depictions have made had made okay. of of chimps going ooh, ooh, ah, <laughs> yeah know, kind of thing, um, and which aren't the sounds at all. <laughs> um, that that I've heard. It was interesting. Some of the some of the shots included um authentic sort of nonverbal communications like like um you know the the chimps sort of rocking back and forth and getting excited and that kind of thing. Um um going side to side and and their hair, you know um um fluffing up at pilo erection kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, where their hair stands up. Um and um so there were some authentic things in there, but they were almost by chance or almost you know ignored. Oh it just happened to be in the shot. Um yeah they had like five vocalizers that they hired <laughs> and 
I, I was just really disappointed in in that as well. Yeah. And they're not even they're not even actors that tend to voc you know, do voiceover work because I'm looking in the music department. They're just people listed under the music department as vocalization. So they're not even they weren't even credited as cast, which is odd, but just um, on the just on the face of it, like usually give voiceover work a little bit more credit than that. But yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I think there were some things. um, Yeah. That the filmmakers were trying to spin um, or hide. So I think they were trying to downplay that. Um, I think they gave an acknowledgement to the sanctuary. Um, the primarily primates mm-hmm. um, and make it sound like that's where the animals or where the apes were. But according to primarily primates, the apes were given to them after the movie was over. <laughs> um, so I, it, that's another kind of layer of this ethical kind of thing. And I think we, we may have talked about this earlier that in the production of the, the film, they were doing some things that were questionable. Yeah, um, as uh, so, yeah. yeah, as as many animal onset things that I've heard, just not not on the, not necessarily this film, but I've I've read additional takes and characterizations of other films that have had large animal casts on them. I don't know if film production crews are the best to take care of animals, even when animal trainers and uh, handlers are present, because even those people may have issues. Again, this is a a transitional time in our history, though. We were coming from a time where that was all perfectly fine to a time when now it's like (laughs) we're like, really, you're you're, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) That this is how. You know, that's awful how the animals were, were treated, you know, so we have a lens now that's that's very different, I think, than the lens when this movie was first being implemented. Um, but I find it highly ironic that that's the, the case, that they're using this large cast and, and who knows how they were treating them as. As they were making this story with this with this very obvious message and not al- allowing them their own voices to be print put on film. Literally, right? Yeah, <laughs> not even giving them a voice. That's, a, that's a great, <laughs> you know, great showing point. them they they're to be seen, not heard, <laughs> like actual children, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Karen Brackey for joining me to discuss Project X. Before we say goodbye, Karen, is there anything that you would like? to plug and you know where can folks find more about your work that either that you are doing these days or some of the work uh, early work that you talked about um during this episode well i've got a lot of eclectic sort of academic work and interests out there so you know i guess you could just google me if you want to for for all that nice um i haven't you know worked with the apes for years and years and years um but i've moved on from that snapshot in time i think yeah so um uh but one thing i would like to plug um one of the things i do is uh, our department hosts now hosts the southeastern teaching of psychology conference which uh you joined us last year yes because of virtualization that's right. Um, 
And it's a, you know, fantastic conference. I think we are going virtual again in February, 2022, which means I will um, join. Great. Uh, it's a great opportunity for your listeners. Um, no matter where they are to join us, they don't have to be in the Southeast and we hope to have another great program this year and hope to draw people in for future years when we can be back in person. Awesome. Well, I really do appreciate you um, coming on and talking Project X with me, Karen. So it was very, very wonderful to talk to you. You as well. Thanks so much. I had a lot of fun. Excellent. And that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next episode, thanks for listening.